Hi everybody, it's uh, Monday and I'd like to spend some time talking to you about a topic uh, that requires me to use the whiteboard in my office, so I'm glad to uh, have an opportunity to, to do a little bit of teaching. I've been kind of reflecting on the nature of our devotional reflections and some of them have been more traditional kinds of devotions where it's obvious that we're, we're focusing in on how we relate to Jesus and how we uh, express our devotion to him in our everyday lives and and some of them have more been more geared toward teaching and instruction but the goal has always been that uh, as you learn about God's word as you learn about Jesus uh, your affections for him would increase uh, by what you learn uh, and so today I'm going to do a little bit of talking and teaching, uh, I want to talk about the way that we approach the scriptures. This picks up to some degree on Friday's devotional about reading the Bible both alone and together. And one of the ways that we tend to talk about the scriptures and our approach to the scriptures I think is uh, somewhat unhelpful. And I want to talk about that for just a bit, a little bit and challenge the way that we think about um, how we interpret the Bible. Uh, and so this, this may be a little bit controversial uh, in some of the ways that um, you've, those of you who are watching or listening uh, might have uh, been uh, taught or th have traditionally thought about how you approach the scriptures. I want to talk about the word literal uh, today. Uh, what does it mean uh, to talk about interpreting the Bible literally? And is that something that we should embrace? Uh, if you think about it, uh, you could be asked that question by anybody. Somebody who's an opponent of Christianity, for, some, for, for example, could approach you and say, do you take the Bible literally? And how you answer that question for them may uh, result in some judgment. If you say, yes, I take the Bible literally, they may distance themselves from you because they assume what that means about you. And uh, they may or, be, may, may or may not be correct about those assumptions. But that also happens within Christianity, between different kinds of uh, churches and different uh, theologians and, and students of Scripture, uh, where you ask that question within the church. You say, do you take the Bible literally? And for some churches, for some denominations even, even a part of their doctrinal statement may include a statement that says, we take the Bible literally. Now I want to examine what we mean when we say that, and I want to suggest that the word literal is not helpful in this discussion when we're talking about how we approach the scriptures, how we interpret the scriptures. The word literal actually doesn't do what we want it to do, what we think we're trying to do when we use that language. We're actually communicating something different based on the meaning of the word. So if you just look at an English dictionary and you consider what does the word literal mean, it actually has several different meanings. Um, literal, and I've got the dictionary in front of me, so literal can mean in accordance with, involving, or being the primary or strict meaning of the word or words. And the contrast is not figurative or metaphorical. So uh, it's talking about the specific meaning of individual words. So the literal meaning of a word uh, is one thing, whereas you know you can use a word in a figurative sense so that it actually refers to something else. Uh, a second meaning that applies more directly as we begin to think through our approach to the Bible is uh, 
following the words of the original very closely and exactly. And this is the idea of translation. So we talk about literal translation. So the idea is we have a Bible that was originally given in Hebrew, some Aramaic, and Greek. And for us to read that in our heart language, if you will, without learning those other languages, it needs to be translated. And so the idea is that a translation could be literal. And it could be literal on the word uh, basis, like the first definition, where we, we make sure that we take the individual words and we bring those over with the strict meaning rather than any kind of figurative extension or extended meaning. Or we could talk about it in the broader spectrum of a whole Bible translation. Is it on the spectrum of more literal or less literal? And the idea is that when we think about transferring a message from one language to another, we would want, if we're going to be more literal, we would want to be as close to a one-to-one -one correspondence between the words used in the original and the words used in the target language, or the language we're translating into. The problem with Bible translation in particular is that Hebrew and Greek are such different languages in their structure from English, so that as I, I think I illustrated with Proverbs 22.6, in the, the Hebrew that's there, in most of those two-line parallel Proverbs, starting in Proverbs chapter 10 and, and moving on through the bulk of the book, most of them, each line of poetry in the Proverbs is cons consists of maybe three or four Hebrew words. But in order for it to make sense into English, we've got to use like 10 or 12 or 15 words just to make it make sense in English. And that's just because... The structure of the two languages is so different. So to speak of literal translation is very helpful. I prefer the term transparent. I prefer to look at a Bible translation and say, how transparent is it? Can I see through the English text that I'm reading here, like looking through a glass? Can I see clearly to the original on the other side of the glass, the original that was inspired, breathed out by God in Hebrew and Greek? Can I see that? And to a lesser or greater degree, I can. And so I like the, the, the language of transparency instead of literal. But still, literal translation is a, helpful, uh, is, a, is, a, is a helpful way of using the term literal. The third meaning that the dictionary gives for literal is the one that gets us into a little bit trickier ground when we talk about interpretation of the scripture. True to fact or not exaggerated, actual or factual. And so when we speak of a, like a historical narrative, for example, we say that it's literal in that it tells us exactly what happened and it doesn't exaggerate or deceive. That's where we start to get into a little bit of tricky ground when we talk about the Bible. The narrative portions in particular, we think, well, if we're going to interpret the Bible literally, we're going to expect that the historical narrative tells us the truth, it gives us the actual factual account, and these accounts are not exaggerated. And that's true, and that's right. Um, the other piece of this, we could say, would to, be, to, to think about it in terms of precision. And this comes into play as well in our biblical interpretation. Uh, we, we look at the texts of Scripture, and we expect a precise uh, explanation of what happened, or a precise uh, evaluation of something. And our measure for precision uh, might depend on who's reading the text. I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a bit. But So we talk about literal interpretation. And if we ask someone, do you interpret the Bible literally? 
when that question comes up, usually the focus might be on certain particular doctrines. So we want to say we interpret the Bible literally because we want to defend the historical truthfulness of the narrative of Scripture, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the motives for going down that road. Now, it, ha it so happens that the word literal and the term literal interpretation has a history. It, it didn't just appear uh, randomly in the midst of discussions, and it hasn't always been a phrase that's used throughout church history. It has a very specific location in history, in American history specifically, so that it comes on the scene at a particular time when uh, evolution is, is coming into the sciences and challenging uh, Christianity's claims about the nature of creation according to the scriptures. And it comes into a time when historical criticism is rising in the academic world so that the interpretation of the scriptures and the truthfulness of scripture is being challenged in the academic world. And so to defend against those challenges, people began to embrace this idea of literalness literalness, that we want to claim that the Bible, in its historical narrative at least, teaches, it teaches exactly what it says. And in fact, I, I was listening recently to a, a prophecy kind of teacher, and we'll talk about prophecy in just a moment, that's where I'm headed. Um, a prophecy teacher was explaining this, and he says his approach to the scripture could be summarized with the phrase, the Bible means what it says. And he uses that phrase to summarize what he means by we interpret the Bible literally. We approach the Bible literally. The Bible means what it says. Now I want to challenge that catchphrase because it just doesn't make sense, actually. It's not reflective of the actual way language works. When you and I speak, when we uh, read books, when we read the newspaper, when we read a magazine, we normally, all the time in fact, frequently, we use figures of speech to communicate everyday, ordinary information, even when we're telling a true story. Even in a biography or a work of historical narrative, figures of speech are readily used. And so it's not as though just because a section of scripture is a narrative that we should expect that the narrator is not going to use some figures of speech to communicate the truth that he's seeking to communicate. Because the Bible is not just about giving us facts, giving us propositions. It does that, but that's not primarily what it does. It tells a story. It also paints pictures. The Bible is full of songs and poetry and imagery and visionary literature that is aside from simply stating facts and teachings about God. Propositional truth is not the only kind of truth. And so the scriptures give us this whole variety of wondrous approaches to communicating truth from God. It's not just one way of communication. It's a lot of different ways. And the beauty of it is God has chosen to use all kinds of human types of literature, human types of writing and communicating in order to communicate his truth. Now, we affirm that the Spirit of God took those human authors and ensured that they communicated exactly what God wanted them to communicate. No more, no less, and in the exact forms and shape 
that he wanted them to. And so the scriptures are completely inerrant, completely infallible in what they teach. And we want to affirm that. That doesn't mean that we should approach the Bible and treat it simply, literally. So I'll come back to this in just a moment to show the problem here. But what we see is that I would suggest instead of reading the Bible literally, we read the Bible literarily. Literarily. The Bible is a collection of literature. And so we should treat it as such. It's human literature inspired by God. And so we don't want to elevate the divine, elevate the, the aspect of God breathing this out to the exclusion of the human element. We need to see them together. This is the same struggle that we face with the incarnation. We want to see, we need to see and recognize Jesus as fully God and fully man. And we need to see the scriptures that way as well. Just as Jesus could be fully human without sin, so also the scriptures can be fully human without error. And so we need to affirm those things together. Now, it so happens, I was reading something uh, a while back that was talking about American Western culture in general, and I think that it was right to observe that American culture generally reads all language literally. That's almost our default. And so the, the desire to approach the Bible literally may in fact be simply a cultural phenomenon, that we are driven as American Westerners to approach the Bible literally, and we're missing something thereby. The question that we always need to be most concerned with when we approach the Scripture, in all of its parts and in, it, and in its grand scheme, is does the author of this particular passage, does the author of this book, does the author of the whole thing intend for us to take a particular section literally? Does the author intend to communicate literally, or does the author intend to communicate with figurative language? In every passage, we must be most concerned with that question. What did the original author intend to communicate? That's the most important thing we should be after always in our Bible reading. What did the original author intend to communicate? That's the most important question we can be asking when we're reading our Bibles. What did the original author intend to communicate? And then we wrestle with how he chose to communicate that in this particular place. And what we find is that more often than not, there is some figurative element that we have to grapple with. And so to simply say, as a rule, we should approach the Bible and take it literally, doesn't reflect what's actually in the scriptures. Now let me talk about a specific area where this comes into discussion and play. And it has to do with prophecy and fulfillment. So if I've already said things that were controversial, I'm about to get even more so, perhaps. So we, it's, it's right and good to talk about, let me use the board here, uh, it's right and good to talk about literal translation. Okay, so we've, we just talked about how that could work. It's questionable, but normal for us to talk about literal interpretation. And that's what we've been wrestling with right at this moment, literal interpretation. But for many folks, they go one step further and anticipate literal fulfillment. And so we're beginning to talk about what does it, how should we understand 
prophecy. When we read prophecy in the Bible, how should we understand its fulfillment? How, what's the relationship between prophecy and fulfillment when we're talking about prophecy that's fulfilled within the scope of Scripture? So what is our expectation? That's really what we're talking about. And many folks would suggest that we should expect literal fulfillment. And I want to suggest to you that that A, doesn't make any sense, and B, doesn't fit with the data that we have. So here's what people mean when they say uh, we should expect a literal fulfillment or the prophecy is literally fulfilled in a certain way. They mean that prophecy must come to pass in the exact shape that it was described in the prophecy. Okay, we'll talk about some examples here in just a minute. Now, this is based on what I believe is a mistaken understanding of prophecy. Many people will define prophecy as, or summarize prophecy as, history of the future. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, that when we read prophecy in the Bible, it is history of the future. What do they mean by that? Well, typically they mean something like, the expectation is that just like uh, in history, in history writing, uh, the, uh, where events of the past are described just as they happened, so also prophecy is uh, uh, describing the events of the future just as they will happen. Now what I want to suggest to you is that this just doesn't match what we see in the New Testament. The data of the New Testament does not fit that description almost ever. It does occasionally, but it's the rare exception. And the normal thing that we see, as I've said many times, is that the fulfillment of prophecy often goes bigger, better, beyond the original wording of the prophecy. This is one of the reasons, not the only reason, not the main reason, but one of the reasons that the Jewish people of the first century did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. There are theological reasons for that, that God had hardened their hearts in judgment, that God had blinded them to recognizing their Messiah in judgment. But also, also, they were expecting the fulfillment of the prophecies in cert to take a certain shape. Now let me see if I can illustrate what this looks like. So let's make up a fake, just a general fake prophecy. So let's put those there to separate those out. So here's a prophecy, just to illustrate what this could look like. Here's a prophecy. Thus says, not the Lord, but thus says somebody, there will be a square. There will be a square. Now, obviously this is a silly thing, but just bear with me for the sake of illustration, okay? So their prophecy is there will be a square. So when you read that prophecy, there will be a square, what do you expect? You expect that the reader's expectation then is that it will be something that looks like this. Now, please forgive my inability to draw correctly. I know that that's not a very good square. Pretend that it is. But that's what you expect. You read a prophecy and it says there will be a square. And you expect something that looks like that, right? That's the reader's expectation at this point. Now let's talk about the fulfillment. The fulfillment 
which would be identified by an authoritative person. This is one of the key things that I think many people who teach Bible prophecy and claim to be prophecy experts, um, that they miss, is that the only person who has the authority to identify the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy is someone who has apostolic, spirit-inspired authority. And that is something that is not granted to you or to me or to us as a church today. We need to be very careful, therefore, about looking at events in history, whether events that happened in our time or events that happened since the closing of the New Testament scriptures, and saying that is a fulfillment of specific prophecy in the Bible. We need to be very careful about that because we don't have the authority to say such a thing with any certainty or confidence. But in the New Testament, when the writers saw Jesus as the fulfillment of these prophecies, or they looked to the church and they saw fulfillment of certain prophecies, they would say, this is the square. This is the square. <laughs> they would say, this is the square. They would describe an event. So read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, for example, when Peter stands up and says, this is what the prophet Joel said, and then he quotes Joel, he's saying, this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And you read that all through the Gospels about Jesus and his ministry, and you read that through the book of Acts, and you read that in some of the New Testament letters, where there are connections made to the Old Testament prophetic scriptures. So here's the reader's dilemma, if you pay close attention, even moderately close attention to the Gospels, especially when the New Testament writers, when the Gospel writers, look at something Jesus does, and then they say, this happened to fulfill what was said in the Scriptures, and then they quote a certain Scripture. Here's the reader's dilemma. What they describe does not look like what they expected, the square. Instead, it looks something like this. Now, is there a square in that? Yes, there is. So there is some resemblance, some connection to the original wording and the expectation that was laid out in the wording of the prophecy. But it looks different. It's not the same exactly, but it is, according to the authoritative, spirit-inspired interpreter, it is the fulfillment of those prophetic texts. And so when we talk about the fulfillment of prophecy, we need to follow the lead of the New Testament authors. When we're talking about fulfillment, they have the authority. They're the ones who tell us how it works. They give us the keys, and so we have to follow very carefully their methodology and their recognition pattern. And this is what it is. Or it might not be like a three-dimensional figure right there where you can kind of see the square, but it might be something like this. Now that's a square, but it's turned sideways, right? So we expected it to look one thing, look one way, to be turned one way, and yet the reality is it's turned this way. Or the dimensions might be off. We, we expected a square of moderate size, and instead we got a giant square, a huge square. And so the, the expectations that are laid, on, laid, laid out for us in the New Testament show us that the prophetic aspect of the Old Testament especially... The, when the fulfillment comes, we need to have our expectations tempered that it might look different than we anticipated. Literal fulfillment, to give this concept credence, 
literal fulfillment demands only and no more. Only this and no more. Which just does not fit the New Testament data at all. Let me give you the one example that's the most famous one, but I could list a dozen at least off the top of my head. Uh, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, so this is in the narrative of Jesus' infancy and youth. You'll remember the story because it's familiar from our Christmas time, if nothing else. Um, when Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, take baby Jesus down to Egypt to escape from Herod, murdering all of the baby boys in Bethlehem, Matthew tells the story. Joseph saw in a dream that Herod was going to try to kill the baby and that they needed to go on down to Egypt. So he goes down to Egypt, and then he returns from Egypt. And Matthew describes that, and then he says, this happened to fulfill what the prophet Hosea said. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, what in the world, what in the world is Matthew doing? How can he say that what he saw happen, what he was told happened, um, in Jesus' experience, experience, fulfilled Hosea 11.1? 1? Because even if you don't even, you don't even have to turn back to Hosea 11.1, 1, but it's good to do that. But you don't even have to. You read the words, out of Egypt, I have called my son. That sounds like talking about the past. It's a past tense verb, right? Out of Egypt, I've called my son. If you do turn back to Hosea, what is very clear is that in Hosea's mouth, when Hosea speaks those words, who's he talking about? He's not talking about the Messiah to come. He's talking about the nation of Israel, and he's not even talking about a prophetic statement about the future. He's talking about the past. He's talking about the Exodus. He's, re he's remembering, he's reminding God's rebellious people of his day that God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And he is reminding them of their identity as his son, his national son. And so when Hosea is looking back to the Exodus and he's saying, out of Egypt I called my son, he is reminding the people of Israel that you are God's adopted son. You are his national son, and yet you have rebelled against him. And he's reminding them that God saved them from slavery in Egypt, that God rescued them from Egypt as he promised he would do. He fulfilled his promise for them. And so Hosea's looking back. Why does Matthew then read Hosea and say that that has relevance for Jesus? What's the logic? Now, we could say, well, the Spirit just revealed to Matthew that that connection needed to be made. And that's true at the end of the day. But let's think about this a little less mystically. Ultimately, Matthew is reading his Old Testament. He's reading his Old Testament scripture. And he recognizes something in the text. Now the Spirit has illuminated the Old Testament text for him. The, the Spirit has highlighted this passage for him. But what did, what did Matthew see? What did the Spirit show him there from the Old Testament that connected it to Jesus? He showed him one of the major themes that pops up in the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, okay, that's just a statement of fact. What does that have to do with anything? Well, Matthew is actually at pains in the early chapters of his Gospel to show that he is the Son of God par excellence. He is the Son of God in a way that's better than Abraham was a son of God, 
And so he's better than even Abraham. He shows that through the genealogy. He's greater. He's the son of God who is greater even than David, who was the royal son of God. And he shows that also through the genealogy of the opening chapters. Jesus is the, the royal son of God. And he also goes to show that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, showing that there's an, a connection between Father and Son that transcends these earthly categories, and that comes up in Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. But here, as a part of that overall picture, Matthew is showing that Jesus also fulfills the role of Israel. He fulfills the role of Israel. Everything that the national Son of God, the people of Israel, were supposed to be, Jesus fulfills. He is the uh, faithful covenant partner for the Mosaic Covenant. He's going to live out in his life obedience to the Mosaic Covenant in a way that no one ever had before. Perfectly. Completely. And so he's going to fulfill the role of the nation of Israel. And Matthew shows us that by making this connection from Hosea 11.1. 1. So what Matthew has done is he's recognized by the Spirit's illumination that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God, he's the Abrahamic Son of God, he's the royal Son of God, and he's also the national Son of God. Luke's Gospel, when Luke paints his genealogy in Luke chapter 4, isn't it? Um, or Luke, Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 4. Luke takes one step further that Matthew doesn't quite get to here. Luke also shows, through his genealogy going all the way back to Adam, that Jesus is the true human Son of God. So not only is he the royal Son of God, not only is he the national Son of God, not only is he the eternal Son of God, not only is he the Abrahamic Son of God, but he's also the human Son of God as the second Adam, the fulfillment of everything that Adam was supposed to be. He's the true human, the one who really lives out the image of God truly, perfectly, and completely. And so it's the sonship idea that Matthew picks up on from Hosea and he connects the dots so that Jesus going down to Egypt was uh, him kind of acting out in his own experience in a small way what had happened to the nation of Israel. So he's living out their story. So he goes down into Egypt like the people of Israel went down into Egypt and God brings him back up out of Egypt like God did with the people of Egypt. And when Jesus does it, he does it as a faithful covenant partner. You see, when they went down to Egypt, they worshipped idols and they became complicit in the idolatry of Egypt and they were unfaithful. God saved them anyway by his grace. When he brings them out of Egypt, he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai, establishes the Mosaic Covenant with them and they immediately break that by building a golden calf. Jesus is already beginning the story of taking Israel's role, function, and identity in himself so that he can represent the nation. He is typologically embodying the nation. This is no kind of literal fulfillment. It's much bigger than literal. It's much better than literal. It's much more complete than a literal fulfillment ever could be. As far as I know, there's no individual prophecy that Matthew could have pointed to that says the Messiah is going to spend time in Egypt and then he's going to come out. Instead, the more important point is 
that Jesus has embodied the role of Israel in himself by going down to Egypt. And then what we're going to see is the story continues. Matthew continues tracking that story in his gospel. Matthew chapter 4, the temptation narrative. Where does Jesus go to be tempted by the devil? Where does the Spirit lead Jesus to be tempted by the devil? Into the wilderness, where he faces certain tests. And in that wilderness experience, we see Jesus living out the wilderness experience of the people of Israel, except, unlike them, he remained faithful to God and didn't give in to the temptation, uh, the temptations that were presented to the people of Israel in the wilderness. He didn't give in to the temptation to complain about food. He trusted God to provide for him. He recognized that man doesn't live by food alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God from Deuteronomy. He didn't give in to the temptation to worship other gods, to worship to bow down to Satan, unlike the people of Israel. So what Matthew is doing there is recognizing that the fulfillment of prophecy doesn't always take the shape that you would expect. And I'm sure it may have come as a surprise to Matthew to uh, see the, the way that Jesus fulfills this, that the Spirit highlighted Hosea and Hosea's word about the past to show that Jesus, what Jesus was doing was a fulfillment of that. But that is our key to understanding how we think about the Old Testament and how we think about prophecy and fulfillment specifically. Uh, Hosea 11.1 1 is not an isolated incident. We could track just with Matthew because he's the one who most regularly tells a story about what Jesus does and then says, this happened to fulfill, and then he quotes a particular Old Testament text. If you just run through those and just test them, what you will see in almost every case, if not every case, is that the fulfillment, what he tells about, doesn't, it doesn't look like this. It doesn't look like the original wording of the prophecy. It's got a different contour, a different shape, a different depth, a different layer. And so we have to get beyond a mere literal understanding of things. Now, I, I, again, going back to just an, a literal approach to the Bible, I understand the concern when the when, when people were fighting the fight, and we still are to some degree, about those who would challenge the biblical narrative about creation or about the resurrection. And the question would come, well, do you take the Bible literally? Well, I do recognize that when the Bible tells a story about a historical event, it tells me, it, it tells me what happened, and it tells me truly what happened. It speaks the truth about the event. It's not... Uh, exaggerating in a way that's deceptive, even though there may be the figure of speech of hyperbole in the story. That is legitimate to do even in news reporting today. And so I affirm that when, when the Bible is speaking in a narrative way, we should say that it is accurately, truly, factually representing the events that took place. That is a clearer statement than simply saying, well, I take the Bible literally. Well, what do you do with the majority of the Bible, truly, the majority, especially when you look just at the Old Testament, but the majority of the Old Testament that is in poetic form? But even beyond that, we have to recognize that just in everyday conversation and when we read the Bible, even when we're telling a story, a historical narrative or a biography, we use figures of speech along the way to tell the story. Because we, we don't just want to report the events. The biblical writers don't just report the events as naked facts. They report the events 
with an intent to teach us something about God and about how he works with his people. So there's an intention in the scriptures that goes beyond just a literal factual report of events. The factual report, when we're talking about history and historical narrative, is foundational and should not be rejected or denied. But if we limit ourselves to thinking in terms of literal interpretation, we are going to miss so much. In fact, I'm convinced that this is one of the problems that a literal mindset drives us to. We put on our literal blinders and we say, I must interpret the Bible literally. And when we come to a passage that the writer intends some figurative language or intends some interpretation that goes beyond or above what we would describe as literal, we totally miss it and we can't see it because we've put these presuppositional blinders on that say, I must take this literally. Now the big question is, and the question I probably won't answer today, is how do you know when to take something literally, precisely, factually, and actually, and when do you take something figuratively? How do you know when to do one rather than the other? And the answer goes is really simple. The author will tell you. The author will tell you. The author, most of the time, gives you clues in the text of when he's speaking in a way that we shouldn't take literally. The clues are usually pretty easy to pick up on. Sometimes, however, they require a bit of knowledge about the way the culture understood these things. For, so, for example, big example, numbers. How do we think of numerals in the Bible? Are they simply to be taken as literal counted quantities? Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are, and sometimes they're also intended to communicate something better. So perhaps you've heard that the number seven can take on the significance of wholeness or completion or something like that. And that is true in the ancient world. The problem is in the modern world, in American Western thinking, we don't use numbers as figures of speech very often. Most of our poetry in the West, in Western modern poetry, you don't use numbers as a poetic device. But in the ancient world, in all cultures, not just Bible, but everything, everybody around them, numbers were used regularly as a poetic device. And so you have to think about that, even in the case of a historical narrative. Now it may be that, and sometimes this is definitely the case, where the number seven, somebody actually counted and there were exactly seven whatevers. But the author may also want you to see that this seven was not just about these particular seven items. The point is not that there were seven, but that there was a complete number or a representative example or something like that. Both of those meanings may be intended by the author. And again, it always comes back to the question, what does the author intend to communicate? And that question requires some effort in our reading sometimes, especially when we have elements that are foreign to us, like figures of speech that we have to figure out. Ancient figures of speech are not the same ones we would use today. And so sometimes to communicate, we have to figure out what the meaning of that figure of speech is and then communicate that as the meaning of the text in different terms so that it communicates what God intended in the Word.
So all this to say, we need to be careful about the way we think about approaching the Bible literally. And we don't need to use that as some kind of diagnostic tool to determine whether somebody is liberal or not. I've often, uh, I've often had to deal with people who will look at an author or a particular theological perspective that doesn't claim to take the Bible literally, and they automatically rejected that person. And they haven't actually considered why they're not using that term. And, and many of us haven't really thought through, why do we insist on the need to appro approach the Bible literally? I think we're afraid, in some cases, people are afraid that if we don't interpret the Bible literally, then that means we're abandoning the truthfulness of Scripture. And that's just not the truth. Uh, for most of the people that would approach the Bible literarily, so I will just fully admit, that's me. I mean, if you couldn't tell. I don't like the term literal. I don't think it communicates what we're trying to communicate. I don't think it protects what we're trying to protect by using that term. Uh, so the Genesis account, for example, some people will say, well, you don't take the Bible literally. That must mean you, you think that the, the creation occurred over billions of years or something like that. And the reason they would say that is because one particular line of interpretation says, Genesis 1, the word day is a figure of speech. And what they're recognizing is the reality the reality that in many cases, many, many, many cases in the Old Testament, the word, the Hebrew word that's translated as day does not refer to a precise 24-hour period. It just doesn't. That's a fact that's easily proven. But the question is, in Genesis 1, what does the author intend to communicate? And my own conviction is that he does intend to communicate a normal, essentially 24-hour period day by using that term. The reason that I've drawn that a conclusion is not because of some presupposition that says I need to take the Genesis 1 narrative uh, literally. Instead, there are grammatical and syntactical indicators in the Hebrew text that reinforce that and suggest that he means a normal 24-hour day. And without those indicators, I might not be so convinced, but they're there. And so that's the reason, not because of some commitment to a literal approach to Scripture, but instead I'm committed to saying, show me what you got. <laughs> show me what's there. I want to see what God intends for us to see there. And the way to see that is through the grammar, through the syntax, through the actual words that are used. And it, it has to go beyond uh, just a commitment to a literal understanding. That's never going to be sufficient uh, for our handling of Scripture. And so my encouragement to us is that we should keep an open mind. And maybe I'm setting myself up, especially in the prophecy area, because I don't want us to be so closed-minded by our presuppositions about our particular approach to Scripture that we miss out or that we misunderstand, even with the people we, we legitimately disagree with, where are they actually coming from? Because when we have this presupposition in place, I've seen this over and over, and unfortunately, this is reinforced by teachers and writers. And I'm getting a little bit animated here because it, it angers me that we're in this position. But many teachers and writers are not responsible for how they paint their opponents. And so many, many, and some of these people you've read and you have benefited from as I who are good, faithful Bible teachers in, other, in, in most ways, 
but they've been irresponsible, and then they've painted other views and said, if you don't take the Bible literally, you're a heretic or a liberal. They've equated, you don't take the Bible literally, you must be a liberal. And they've taught the church broadly to think that way. And that is unloving at best, but it also just doesn't reflect the reality of the scriptures. We have to accuse the New Testament writers of following some of those same methods that don't take the Bible literally. And where will that leave us if we abandon the scriptures themselves? So uh, I hope you, I may have generated more questions than I gave clarity or answers, but uh, I hope that you have benefited from thinking a little bit about the way that we approach the scriptures, the way that we think about prophecy and fulfillment. And we'll talk more about these things at other times. Let me pray. For us. Father, thank you for your word and the wonder that it is and its wondrous variety. I'm so grateful for the beauty of the broad spectrum of your word as literature. It thrills me to read your Bible in all of its complexity and in all of its variety. Thank you for using human languages, ordinary human languages. You could have chosen to communicate with us in some heavenly language that only a certain people or a certain person had the special key for. But you didn't. You chose to communicate through ordinary human language that is translatable. And so I'm so grateful that that is the way that you've chosen to love us and to meet us where we are in our finiteness. Thank you for communicating in a word that we could receive and embrace and obey. We need the Spirit's empowerment to see it rightly. We need the Spirit's empowerment to see it and to respond to it rightly. And we thank you that you've given us that as well. So we commit ourselves and our reading of the Bible to you. Would you help us to understand how to approach it better and better? In Jesus' name.